Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, a podcast that, uh, well, you know what Aldous Huxley was to the satirising of the 1930s, yeah? This is nothing like that. It's basically just a poor attempt to stifle some of the screaming you do at the news, but in a podcast. I'm Tina Duyeb, and this week, seven Labour MPs are no longer, as they have split from the party and called themselves the Independence Group, a name that is in itself a paradox, you know, much like the Lonely Masses, Happy Depressives, or the Popular Centrists. The seven MPs realised that as there was nothing else going on in the world of politics, now was the ideal time to break away from Labour because, hey, nothing says we're angry about our party's stance on Brexit like deciding that they should leave last minute rather than fix it from the inside. Led by MP Chuka, I can't get the polythene wrapping off Amuna, he said that they have taken the first step in leaving tribal politics, which is odd as that step appears to be forming a new smaller tribe. MP and ship's counsellor in every Star Trek ever, Luciana Berger, said that Labour had become institutionally anti-Semitic as she's received really horrific levels of abuse over the years. And she said that she was embarrassed and ashamed to stay in the party, but you know, only after she fought against her deselection last week. MP and completely nondescript human Chris Leslie, I mean, seriously, you try, you try and describe it. Well, I mean, maybe Chris, two small eyes poked into an uncooked bloomer Leslie. Okay, yeah, it is doable. All right. Chris Leslie, who lost a vote of no confidence against him by his CLP last September, said that Brexit was the tipping point, which is odd, as if that was the case, he might have left two years ago. And MP and what if you asked a child to draw a sad Annie Lennox, Angela Smith, proved that she could be prime ministerial material by talking for ages without saying anything of substance while always sounding like she might cry. So far, the independent group haven't announced any policies, which again means they could be quite a tough opposition to all current parties. And they are backing a people's vote, but they don't want to have a by-election in the areas they represent because it seems the public's opinion is only important sometimes. In the incredible way that politics works now, mere hours after criticising Labour for being a racist party, Angela Smith went on Politics Live and referred to her fellow panellist as being of a funny tinge. So I guess that explains how they're going to try and appeal to Leave voters. Hmm? It's nice that she's directly tackling racism in Labour by just leaving the party all by herself without any need for an inquiry. Labour leader and Steve Zissou on crack, Jeremy Corbyn, responded by saying Labour's opponents are the Tories, not each other, which will come as a surprise to many Remain voting members. 
deputy leader and man who always looks like he's about to unveil his new art exhibition of ceramic smug elbows and tell you how great it definitely is, Tom Watson, warned Corbyn that he has to change his way of doing politics or more MPs will leave. You know, the ones who keep saying they hate his politics anyway. Watson said at times that he no longer recognised his own party, which after he lost six stone and barely looks how he used to, I guess that was a compliment. The Lib Dems haven't commented, but they're probably consoling each other that they're so unpopular, even break-off centrist Labour members would rather start their own pointless group than join them. And there's been no comment from recently independent MP and head of every local Amdram group, Frank Field, who's probably still waiting for Chika Umuna to return his calls. It's not known if any centrist Conservative MPs or others at all are going to join them, and you do have to wonder what sort of impact seven MPs can make, unless they're planning to form a particularly boring dance troupe. Challenging the Labour splitters for least surprising news this week is Prime Minister and Cutlery stuck together with old Coles Law Theresa May, who told MPs that there would be no meaningful vote last week because, of course, there wasn't. Nothing means anything anymore when your entire existence has been reduced to debating again and again that you need to do things that you can't do, that no one wants and is ultimately doing nothing to prevent catastrophe. So instead, May put forward a motion just asking if Parliament endorsed her negotiations and Parliament said a resounding no. I mean, to think it was only a few weeks ago that they had confidence in her, or maybe they still do, just in something other than her abilities to fix Brexit. I mean, sure, we've got confidence in her ability to scowl at babies or stomp around Parliament like Nosferatu on poppers, but this Brexit lark? Nah, mate. Labour's amendment to have a meaningful vote by February the 27th was defeated, and then the SNP vote to extend Article 50 also suffered a huge defeat, possibly after everyone realised that that would just mean they'd have to debate this shit for even longer. And then the government's amendment was defeated by 45 votes. Was it May's promise to Labour ministers that she'd protect workers' rights, even though everyone knows how hollow that is when it's unlikely anyone will be working after Brexit? Or was it the European Research Group, led by malformed magic one Jacob Rees-Mogg, abstaining their votes because the amendment ruled out a no-deal Brexit and their big angry adult babies who want things to burn because everyone laughs at how their mums still label their names in their underwear? Or was it May's comments during a cabinet discussion about food waste where she stated that she scraped the mould off jam rather than throwing it away and then just eats the rest? It's not conservatism if you're not even protecting preservatism, is it? I mean, what other dark habits does the Prime Minister have? Picking the grubs out of the rotting carcass and just sucking on the bone marrow because it should be fine, eh? Don't worry, everyone, if you just lick the ice cream that's under the turd, you'll be alright. If being in a jam while trying to pretend it's not decaying isn't a metaphor for our times, then I'm not sure what is. 2016, it was all Brexit is easy. Now here we are in 2019 and it's all scrape the mould off jam. 2022, I'm sure, will be full of government statements about eating unwanted acquaintances and least favourite loved ones first in order to survive. Ah no, anyway, back a bit, a little bit, just a little bit, it was the ERG again. Deputy Chairman of the ERG and a man who very much looks like he advertises on Craigslist for someone to come round so he can poke them in the eye for his own pleasure, Steve Baker, warned May that her government would collapse if her withdrawal agreement went through, seemingly claiming that if she somehow managed to bring everyone together, it wouldn't bring everyone together. This is very much the ERG's way of thinking though. We don't want a physical border in Northern Ireland, but we mustn't have a backstop either. We don't want May's plan, but we also don't want to make a plan. We are grown-ups, but we also need Nanny to tuck us in or we get nightmares. It's very hard for them to imagine not having your cake and eating it when their entire life has involved someone handing them two cakes at a time. Baker insisted that May respect the electorate, which is tricky to take seriously, when Baker's own constituency of Wickham voted 52% to remain. If there's one thing that does unite the Conservative Party, it's an absolute inability to take their own advice, or anyone else's, or read a manual, or try and remember a bit on a programme they saw about it once. 
Business minister and composite of all the bits of a mix-and-match Facebook that horrified children, Richard Harrington, accused the ERG of treachery and said that they should go and join soggy Weetabix punched into a condom for a face Nigel Farage's new Brexit party instead, which would officially make the worst party even more intolerable, like if the first guests at Noel's house party were Anders Breffig and a repeat of El Dorado. Speaking of Farage, he seems to be in charge of purple momentum, something that sounds a lot like a mid-coitus injury. And that's planning to deselect pro-Europe Conservative candidates from their seats, meaning that several MPs, including My smile is covering up my entire lack of any emotions ever, Heidi Allen, Sarah, I love the NHS but we sleep in different rooms, Wollaston, and Nick, worst member of Erasure Bowls, could be politically homeless within months. But hey, I hear the independent group are looking for chums, and according to their lack of policies or convictions so far, it may be the ideal home for the sort of Tories who only rebel when absolutely forced to do it by everyone else. James Dean, but only when his car is tied to a rope and a bigger truck is driving it forwards in a race while James has his eyes closed and crying a lot. This all prompted May to write a letter to her party insisting on unity and asking them to move beyond what divides us. Except that it's Brexit that's dividing us and she's still being a dawdling fuckwit about doing anything about it. It's a bit like if I parked my car on top of your car and then asked you to calm down, stop swearing and get past the transport issues that divide us. May will be returning to Brussels this week because I'm pretty sure it's the only place she can go where absolutely no one will bother her for a few hours. It looks like the crunch of what happens next will all take place in the last week of February, which MPs are calling the highest of high noons, forgetting that, of course, most spaghetti westerns were made in Europe. In other Brexit news, Honda have announced that they're closing their Swindon plant and Ford have announced thousands of job cuts all due to the uncertainty of the UK's relationship with Europe. Yeah, well, fuck em, eh? We won't need cars in a post-Brexit Britain. We'll already be exhausted and tired enough. Seriously, though, and puns aside, our roads will be so full of potholes and there'll be no petrol, so we'll probably just have to travel around on um, mud and depression. I'm also certain that several more hardline Conservatives heard about the Honda Civic and assumed it was a public asset, so planned to shut it down anyway. The health minister and face drawn on a belly, Stephen Hammond, revealed that the NHS is stockpiling body bags in case of a no-deal, which makes sense as we'll all need to keep our food supplies sealed and as fresh as possible considering most dead people won't fit in a family fridge. The EU is planning to send food aid to Britain's poorest in event of a no-deal and I for one look forward to hardline leavers rejecting it to stand up for sovereignty so that I can have even more nice fancy cheese. The head of the Northern Ireland Civil Service has said that he's concerned that the current status of no elected ministers in the Assembly will become normal, as it has now been two years since the Stormont stalemate started. And that is quite an incredible tongue twister, I must say. I do also have to say, though, based on the rest of the UK and our ministers, I honestly think we should take a leaf out of Northern Ireland's book and maybe just give that lack of ministers a try for two to maybe 400 years. In other news, on Friday, 15,000 children and teenagers went on strike from school and marched on Westminster to call for action on climate change. Because that's where we are now. It's up to children to point out that while grown-ups are arguing about which route to take, they're in the back having to loudly shout that the car is on fire. In response to the strike, Theresa May told school children that they were wasting their time, which many were quick to point out as hugely hypocritical, and a lot like, say, a chocolate teapot telling a Swiss army knife that it's useless, or an abacus telling the CERN reactor that it needs to get with the times, or... No, wait, sorry, these are rubbish. It's a bit like Theresa May telling almost anything or anyone else in the entire universe that they're being shit. That's exactly what it's like. But in defence of the Prime Minister, for some unknown reason, it's just possible that May's actually telling young people their efforts to ensure the future is a place they can live in are a waste of time because she's trying her hardest to make sure they'll all be dead way before climate change kicks in. 
Leader of the House of Commons and living waxwork Andrea Leadsom was another of a number of very rich Conservatives who seemed to be extremely angry that schoolchildren were concerned about not having to suddenly evolve gills because of the crap older generations have done, and she said that what they were doing was truancy. But as Andrea Leadsom pointed out several times in her Conservative leadership campaign in 2016, she is a mother, so she would know. It's just that she's a mother of, um, you know, children she's happy to have die in extreme flooding. Such a weird stance to take. Are the Conservatives trying to neg the youth vote? Or are they just born old and unable to understand why it's pointless for kids to stay in their underfunded schools while taking tests to help them get jobs that won't exist, rather than ask that maybe when they get older they can breathe a few times? Either way, I thoroughly look forward to the kids being in charge and enjoying watching people like Lidsom try and use money to fight off a tsunami. Shadow Chancellor and every character in a Mike Lee film ever, John McDonnell, said in an interview that wartime Prime Minister and slowly melting big toe Winston Churchill was a villain rather than a hero because he sent the army into the minor strike riots of Tony Pandy in Wales. But I think these things are really complicated. I mean, where's the nuance in a hero or villain question? Some people are both. I mean, look at Churchill. You know, sure, there was his part in the Tony Pandy riots, his part in the Indian famine that killed three million Bengalis, his forced repatriation of Kenyan citizens, his admiration of Mussolini, and, you know, loads of other stuff but then on the other hand those adverts with that dog are hilarious aren't they you know the insurance ones where he goes oh yes i mean oh just just brilliant brilliant so i mean swings around about say conservative mp and enthusiastic neck robert halfen called for an emergency debate on churchill in parliament because there's no emergency like someone who's been dead for 56 years eh he then went on to join the bandwagon of criticizing school children striking about the lack of action on climate change which is happening now i mean it does explain quite a lot of general conservative thinking is 50 years behind and i really look forward to debating a solution for the northern irish border situation in 2068 In a similar vein, in the US, President and half-deflated Bouncy Castle, Donald Trump has asked Japanese Prime Minister and human Yoda Shinzo Abe to nominate him for a Nobel Peace Prize. I'm guessing the only way that would work was if it was for how whenever Trump is actively not somewhere, that place is immediately more tranquil. This comes just days after Trump's State of Union address mainly involved him declaring a national emergency because no one will let him build a wall. I'm starting to wonder if they should just tell him they've already built it and if he ever visits, the Democrats could helicopter in tiny Stonehenge from Spinal Tap and just tell Trump he's very, very far away from it. I reckon that'd last till at least 2020. Back in the UK, Justice Secretary David, pronounce it like you're being sick, Gork, announced the rollout of GPS tags for offenders, with the idea that they won't need to be sent to prison if you can track their every move. I think there's a missed opportunity here to just pop sat-navs on all criminals, with specific maps that always point them to the straight and narrow, and a constant insistence that they turn to the moral right. And lastly, Political Review Show This Week is ending on BBC after host and heir to the Shrek fortune, Andrew Neil, announced his departure. I, for one, am very concerned as to what we will all watch now in order to see how absolutely not to do satire. God, there was a lot of car metaphors in that, wasn't there? Can you tell I'm feeling a bit run down? Oh, God, what was that? Why did I do that? Sorry. Hey, hey, Papa Brods, what's going down in your end of town? Oh, God, and that is a shit greeting as well, isn't it? Every week, I think, what would be a new way of saying hey to the listeners? And I'll be honest, that one says probably run out of new ways and I should just stick to the classics you know like um hello and well look at you and your big face I've had to do a bit of catch up on the news this weekend uh, for this week's shows as I have been on the road lots like uh roadkill and generally I've missed all the nothing that was happening and when I did check in it was politicians who aren't doing anything to stop climate change telling children they're awful for caring about still being alive in a few years and I just can't really wrap my head around that way of thinking in terms of either wanting to attract the youth vote which you'll never do by saying vote for us as we make sure you die before you get old or you know maybe they just think it's a good idea to troll people who genuinely give a shit about the state of the planets in i mean 
both of those just make you look stupid and selfish. Yeah, fuck those kids who care about their and future generations' lives. Won't anyone think about bigots like me who enjoy making sure they can't have homes or jobs and just want to use their rent to pay for oil to eat, whales to punch and food that will fuel extra farts for me to do just for laughs and that? I spend a lot of my time feeling pretty despondent uh, about climate change, I'll be honest. And uh, I'm very aware that I'm in the generation that needs to be doing something about it. My petty contributions of late have mainly involved getting a refillable water bottle that I keep forgetting to refill. uh, And then I have to buy bottled water to top it up because nowhere has taps. And I've got a plastic coffee cup that I just keep putting the lid on incorrectly and then scolding myself with it while driving and um, therefore polluting the planet. I'm not even... It's not even really trying, is it? It's rubbish. What tips do you... What do you do to save the planet? What are you um, just having... Not having children? Oh, God, I've got one of those as well. I'm really awful. My carbon footprint is like a clown shoe. Um, anyway, uh, sorry, what I should say is uh, this week's podcast, as you can probably tell, uh, was hastily churned out in between trying to sort out somewhere to live, which I've finally been successful. We finally uh, got a flat and it's not just a, a cupboard with a toilet in it like most of the places we looked at. Um, so that's done. And uh, I started to support for Frankie Boyle. Um, I did the first one of those tonight where I mared an entire audience with um, exhausted rambles. Uh, not so much sort of warm them up as kind of ensured they stayed temperate and no one died. Hmm. So, uh, anyway, uh, what I mean is, uh, welcome to all new listeners. Uh, Well, look at you, old listeners, and thank you for being here or there or wherever you are. I mean, if you're neither here nor there, then I'm impressed that you're listening to this at all, rather than panicking about being trapped inside a black hole or vortex. But I hope, if nothing else, uh, you're soothed by that situation still being less stressful than Brexit. Um, Thank you this week to Simon for donating to the Kofi account. And if you would like to buy me a coffee, or as I've now labelled it, strong drink to help support this podcast, or just kind of... um, for my own survival uh, you can do a once off or monthly donation at ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro or if you want to be like the uncool kids you can do it at patreon.com forward slash parpolbro which is an every week fun game of what's more expensive for everyone doing it in pounds or dollars who's ruined the economy more is it the UK or US ha um, if you can't donate though don't worry I won't hunt you down and kill your family I am way too busy for that but I also definitely won't uh, hunt down and kill your family if you give the show a tasty review on the podcast app's what you use um, as all of them nice words or at least words written in fear over the safety of your family from a tired fractious podcast host all help others to know that this exists um, as does you just bellowing that it exists at a room of random unimpressed strangers which uh, coincidentally is exactly what I did tonight uh, you're welcome um, also this week as well as pleading for you to donate to the show do you fancy sponsoring me doing something very very stupid I am once again taking part in one of Mark Watson's uh, ridiculously long shows next week this time it's 20 26.2 hours long and I'll be trying my best to reenact a famous sports celebration or ritual every hour despite having absolutely no clue about sports or rituals or probably time actually after we're several hours in um, last time I did one of these shows uh, with Mark four years ago I had my back shaved by Gillian Anderson who used a disposable razor and hummus while I wore a dress uh, yes really 15 year old me was absolutely baffled as to uh, how to take that be aroused or confused bit of both who knows um, all proceeds from this one are going to the Dementia Revolution charity and if you fancy sponsoring me uh, you can do that at uk.virgingivingmoney.com forward slash tin and do yep one and I'll pop that link in the podcast blurb and on the website too um, I'll be honest after me telling you that I'm absolutely exhausted and over busy uh, 26.2 hours of shows probably not the best idea uh, so if anything maybe just sponsor um 
the fact that I'll probably keel over halfway through. Oh, I'm tired just thinking about it. Um, also, the Kids Politics Show I'm part of, called How Does This Politics Thing Work, then is at the Lighthouse Pool on Friday at 11am and 2pm, and then at the Gulbenkian in Canterbury at 2pm uh, on Saturday. I think that's the time. I haven't rechecked. Really uh, we had two lovely shows in Bedford and Guildford last week, with a particular highlight for me being a small girl called Millie in Guildford asking me after the show what MP stood for, and I told her Member of Parliament, and she asked me, why don't we call them Mops? Oh, that's amazing. We should definitely call them mops. Imagine mops debating. It'd be like a beautiful scene from Fantasia, rather than just the bin of noise that it currently is. Um, these shows are suitable for everyone aged six plus, so please do bring your small people along for some edutainment or entication um, or something like that. Lastly, uh, while I spent the weekend driving around, I listened to the Radio 4 satirical show Agendum, which is uh, just amazing and uh, made me laugh to the point of uh, dangerous driving. Well worth finding on the iPlayer. Um, and what I really wanted to plug was the New York Times podcast Caliphate, which is the most gripping piece of investigative journalism I've heard in a while. Um, it is about ISIS, obviously, and not about, I don't know, uh, what happens to California at the end of time. But it's all by uh, Rukmini Kalimachi, who is just uh, an amazing journalist. And um, seriously, I, I started listening and then had to listen to several episodes all in a row because it is brilliant. Do check it out. Um, this week's show, as I said, uh, basically, I, I'll be honest, I'm shattered this week. I haven't had a lot of time. So there is less me than normal as, let's face it, I mean, what is there to say about Brexit anyway? It is more nothing with added cars leaving while MPs just let each other down on a daily basis. It'd be more productive for you if I just played the sound of an upset bassoon over a loop of someone falling into a well for about five minutes. So, look... I'm not even bothering this week as I am knackered and I don't have a bassoon. And instead, there is a fascinating interview with Paul Evans from Who Funds You, all about think tank transparency, that then segues into a, very nicely into a chat about the very shoddy state of things. Um, it's, it really enjoyed that chat. Um, plus, I take a little look at the teenager who joined ISIS and now wants to come back to Britain because, you know, she's heard it's way more extreme and intolerant here and thinks she'll fit right in. Probably. Go on, have some of this. <laughs> Think tanks. Sounds like a very niche road safety advert for living in a highly militarised area. But actually, think tanks are instead when a bunch of experts devote time and give advice on a specific area of politics. That's what the little Google definition says when you type it in. But then the Google definition also says I'm a film actor, which is news to me. Unless they somehow know about that time, I thought it'd be funny to pretend I was a role of Kodak 200 Colour Plus for all of three minutes because someone said I was being too negative. Think tanks are often on the telly box, newspapers, radio and that sort of stuff, either being quoted about their new report on studies they've been doing or on the other end of the scale for some think tanks being all smug on question time and successfully not answering anything while telling everyone else that they're wrong. Thing is, while some think tanks are very clear about who funds them and their motives or interests in carrying out the research and reports they do, others don't seem to want anyone to know who's filling their pockets and yet expect the public to just sit back and assume they're unbiased experts. But, you know, not the type people are tired of or something. For example, the Institute of Economic Affairs, or IEA, which is the correct sort of noise you might make when you realise how shady they are, never reveal their donors. But in the past, they were revealed to be given a lot of money by the tobacco industry while simultaneously opposing bans on cigarette advertising. So now they are hardline Brexit fans who want to privatise the NHS. It'd kind of be nice to know exactly which one of the many billionaires who can earn money from those things is behind it, or if they're just yet more idiots who haven't read anything. And either way, could please someone introduce them as such whenever they feature on a politics programme? The IEA have an E rating on Who Funds You, a website for the campaign for think tank transparency. An E doesn't mean that they party hard on weekends, but that they haven't provided any information on donors at all. 
Compare that to, say, the New Economics Foundation, who have a big shiny A, as in rating. I wasn't being crude. But why won't some of the think tanks declare their sugar daddies? Does it really make that much difference if we know who funds them or not? Even though I'm not a think tank, how do I get an A rating because these sorts of things are important to me? Well, this week I asked nearly all of those questions to Paul Evans, who is, as he put it, one of the co-conspirators behind Who Funds You. Paul is part of Political Innovation, a group that aims to help people understand how democracy works, and as part of that, he created Who Funds You. He's also written a book called Save Democracy, Abolish Voting, which received very positive reviews about its thought-provoking content. Now, I have to be honest with you, listeners, um, I would usually read uh, a book that a guest has written before interviewing them, but I didn't realise that the Paul Evans I would be speaking to was the same one that had written that book until a day or so before we spoke, and so I didn't read his book in advance, uh, which is very, very sloppy of me. Um, I also uh, managed to say, who funds me, uh, instead of who funds you, about three times during this, because my daughter had woken us up five times the night before, and my brain was broken, and I'm an idiot. But excusing my shoddy workings this week, um, this interview with Paul is a real, real good, and I, I really enjoyed it, and it's starts on think tanks and then goes uh, into a sort of much wider sphere of things. And I hope you find it as interesting and informative as I did. Here is Paul. So, Paul, this is probably, it's a very basic question, but what exactly is a think tank? Um, I'm aware that they've been uh, involved in politics for a long time. I've interviewed uh, the Resolution Foundation for this podcast, among others, but it's still very uh, shady to me as to what exactly think tanks do uh, and how they have a hand in politics. Yeah, well, they're a, they're a relatively new innovation, you know, I mean, the last 50 years or so. Um, there was... Uh, in the 1970s, the, the, gov- the governments used to set up uh, prime ministers. I think Edward Heath set up a think tank, and it was really it was it was a sort of evolution from the, there, there was always a, there's always been a frustration with the civil service. There's always been a frustration that when you you know the old joke that um, um, that it doesn't matter who you vote for, the government always gets in. Yeah, and a lot of part. I mean, really the. If you were studying politics in the sixties and seventies and, and and you know the early eighties, the, the big question was that it didn't matter. You know that the civil service were very unaccountable; that they were like an oil tanker. It took an awful lot of uh, an awful lot to turn them around. And I think politicians started to want to have a much more diverse eco- ecology of um, of ideas and, and and thinking that that they could draw from than just you know. You win an election, and and essentially winning election, the prize, the great prize that you won was you got to, you got a front row seat on watching the country being run, um, and I think they, I think there was, I think there was a growing ambition to do stuff that was not that that, that fell outside of that mold and that was challenging. I think it was, it was an idea that was more attractive to the right than the left in that. Um, the, the the right want to you know the, the right were probably more interested in privatization for instance so you know right. g- g- civil servants tend not to advise you to abolish their department and and, and privatize it <laughs> so uh, so i suppose there was that there was the um there was the, there was the num- n- number 10 think tank and mrs thatcher in particular was um was uh she liked sort of having deniable outriders she liked having uh, organizations that weren't quite in the in the fold but that would was doing and saying useful things that were creating a useful background noise that were producing useful disruptions i mean i think tanks are often exist to disrupt things don't they um and and she had the you know the institute for economic affairs 
was was very useful to her. I mean, she she was also there were there was the Freedom Association, which was a, a you know a, a terrifically right wing um, body in the in the post war years that that really did argue against it. Was very much the Hayek that it was the the road to serfdom thing, the idea that uh, that this that the that the so that the um centralized state was going to was going to stifle all innovation and was going to stifle all freedom um so she did draw on that and i think what what think what what politicians want often is i mean in a very politically neutral way think tanks are a great thing in that they're a bridge between academic work and um and and governments you know a- academics are often infuriatingly impractical they'll they, you know they'll you'll ask them to do some research and they'll they'll tell you the question that that that, you, that they'll answer the question that you asked not necessarily the one that you actually really want asking <laughs> so um so i think think tank i mean i i think think tanks are a really healthy thing i think a democracy needs um political think tanks it needs political entrepreneurship it needs people coming up with new ideas it needs diversity it needs lots of you know interesting um interesting perspectives developed policy ideas you know politicians need in in the modern media age politicians do need shovel ready policy ideas they need something that they can move on fairly quickly uh i'm not sure that that's a good thing but i think democracy hasn't evolved in in an entirely healthy way in that respect but the kind of you know, political, um, polit- political, electoral, political settlement that we have does need ready-made, attractive ideas that can work quite fairly quickly. So that that's that's how they came about, um, and I think there are there are just different sorts of think tanks in lots of ways. And so, I mean. So how do how do they then have a hand in the in the governments or in 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 politics in general? Does the do the parties have to sort of say that they have an alliance with them? I mean, because it does seem like there are certain think tanks at the moment that have got more influence over government than others. You know, by being a think tank, do you automatically have some way in? That's what I'm curious about. Well, I mean, the the last Labour government had. I mean, the IPPR. Was to, the IPPR was to some extent the midwife to New Labour. It was a uh, it was a think tank that was set up in the eighties by a few uh, a few people that were very close to Neil Kinnock, and it re- its job really was to establish workable policy ideas that that a, a, a Labour government could run with, and it was part of the Labour modernisation thing. So yes, the, the, there are some that have. I think are a very unhealthy influence and I think they have unhealthy access. And I think the big question is that they hog a lot of political bandwidth because, you know, politics can only hold so many ideas in its head at any one time. And, you know, think tanks are the things that generate ideas. And I think if, if there's a disproportionate amount of funding going into one particular sort of think tank, then all of the idea, a lot of the ideas that are coming out are going to, um, are going to come from that area and they they swallow up a lot of the political bandwidth that could be taken up by or by the concerns of ordinary citizens i mean there's a very purist way of looking at this that everybody should have a good democracy should be be very equal in that every citizen should feel that their interests are being advanced and defended equally there there shouldn't be any um inequality in that respect and i think think tanks do 
when 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 they're representing material interests, they do damage that. There are there are think tanks that are absolutely impeccably transparent, like the Institute for Fiscal Studies, for instance. That's a think tank, right? Uh, it's and it's the generally it's the sort of um, it, the, the IFS settle arguments, don't they? You know, when whenever we want to get a a, a neutral a, a, a neutral economist view on things, the government go to the IFS. Um, the flip side would be the um, organisations that look and feel a little bit like think tanks, like the Taxpayers Alliance, which uh, I think one thing we can say for certain is the Taxpayers Alliance doesn't represent ordinary taxpayers. It doesn't, <laughs> it, it doesn't li- listen equally to the interests of every taxpayer uh, and, and they'll never disclose their funding, I think at least but largely because of that. You just said that they sort of, uh, you know, that they they feel or seem like a think tank. I mean, are they? What stops them being a think tank? Then why would why would the Taxpayers Alliance not be one? I, well, I don't think there's a I don't think there's a sort of um, I don't think you could write an algorithm that would say this is a think tank, this isn't. You know, there there are lots of organisations that do some things that think you know do some uh, think tankery sort of things, but they also do. They do. I mean, the, the Taxpayers Alliance are more of a campaigning body than the think tank. To be fair, they um, they they put their, you know, if if you're a, a reporter and you want someone to, and there's this also awful problem that that report reportage seems to have gone into now, that they mistake uh, asking, you know, getting one person from the left and one person from the right to come in and comment on any subject, and they mistake that and they call that balance. Um, and you know, in, in a way, it's that I think I think it was Nick Cohen, the journalist, I saw quoting something a few days ago that you know what you don't if you, if you want to know the weather, you don't get someone from the right and someone from the left to come in <laughs> and uh, give you their opinion on whether it's raining or not. Uh, you know, a proper journalist should put their head out the window and look to see if it's raining. <laughs> um, and there's so so I suppose there's. Uh, there's that that there's that problem. The, the Taxpayers Alliance have uh, emerged, I think, to walk into the gap that's that's been created by the collapse in funding for journalism. So in the past, where journalists would do their own research, now you can just phone up the Taxpayers Alliance, and they have. I mean, I promise you, if you answer that, if you if you phone them, they will have a story ready for you. It'll be absolutely well packaged. It'll have all the footnotes. It will be. Uh, it'll be attractive. It'll have a, It'll be well, well written, and we don't know how many employees they have. We don't know how many people there are there crafting that message because you can have two messages. You can have um, two policy positions that are equally interesting and equally valuable. But if one of them has invested a lot of money in presentation and in marketing and in focus grouping, uh, you know the way that the message is has is going to be put to the public. Then it it has a, a I think an anti democratic advantage. I mean, is that an issue with? I mean, because you know, I think one of the main ways that I've known about think tanks is by seeing you know somebody from a think tank on Question Time or on This Week or whatever, and there is never any uh, preamble by the presenter about what it is they do or what they represent. They're just presented as a voice of authority um, without us knowing what the authority is. I mean, that's something that I guess there needs to change across media rather than anywhere else? I think it does. I think it has to happen for the right reason. Um, 
I mean, there's uh, James Bloodworth said something quite interesting. The the author, the uh, political author, James Bloodworth, he said uh, he he very much agrees with with the you know with me and with us with the Who Funds You website on the need for disclosure. But he says that there's also something really unhealthy in the way that conversations happen on Twitter, where people go around saying Who Funds You, Who Funds You, and there's this almost he, he, the word he uses is a web commissar who cuts off all discussion on the basis that, you know, we shouldn't be listening to someone because they're, they're funded by so-and-so. Um, and I think it's, there is something very unhealthy about the way that that's done. But I think at the same time, it is a legitimate question, but it's one that we have, we have to be asking for the right reason. And the right reason is we need the right sort of diversity. It's not that um, people that, that have invested money in political lobbying also don't have anything valuable to say. Sure. Yeah, sure. So it's, it's, it's more that if we knew where they were coming from, you'd be able to have the correct sort of balance that you might need on television as opposed to, I mean, one that we don't we don't know what it is. So how can you say? I mean, how do you find with them? Um, I have to say, I, I don't think I don't think politicians, I don't think the news, I don't think journalists should be using these uh, think tanks. They shouldn't be inviting people onto their programmes from think tanks that have undisclosed funding. Not not because what they're saying is, is is invalid, but because it's it reflects a deeper illness in journalism. That question about sticking the head out and asking asking about the rain, you know, you you you, you I think often political discourse is between, you know, you often hear they'll get some Corbynite think tank and some right wing think tank on, and that's presented as as the sort of the normative political discourse that's going on in the country, and it isn't, you know, most voters. Most sensible people, the people that politicians really benefit from listening to are people who are agnostic, people who are a bit more, you know, when they're asked a question, they'll go, well, you know, on the one hand and on the other, they're a bit more conversational. They're a bit more, they, they have an original perspective. What you have with, when, when you're, when you're doing a program like Question Time or, or, or This Week or something like that, and the only people you're having on are politicians and think tanks, what you're doing is you're sort of, it's 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 a vision of a country that is only the Westminster Village. It'd be like thinking that that Coronation Street's a documentary on on, <laughs> on living in Manchester. If you think that <laughs> politics is the thing that's portrayed on Question Time or on on This Week, it's not. You know, if you work in politics, if you if you're in a political role, you know that it's a much richer tapestry and it's much more interesting and nuanced and. And, agno you know, agnosticism is so much more interesting. And that's the reason I wouldn't use these people. It's not because of who funds them. I think the fact that there, there's a disproportion, there are disproportions in funding is the evidence that tells journalists that they shouldn't be using think tanks a lot, a lot of the time. And when they do, they should be using ones that are open about their funding, because then at least we can challenge where they're coming from. So, I mean, there's a lot I'd like to ask you about there, but I, I think just uh, to go to the Who Funds Me website, which um, uh, you're, you're part of, um, how has it been easy to get um, sort of transparency from think tanks to take part in it? I mean, how did you collate that information? Um, and, and what is it that stops think tanks having to, you know, uh, having to open up Who Funds Me? Is there, there, there's no regulations in that industry, are there? Or No, no, there, there aren't there aren't any regulations and I suppose that there'd kind of be problems if there were wouldn't there you know there's I mean that that would that would start to be state censorship I think uh, it would certainly be portrayed as 
as such. No, I think I mean think tanks. There's not a. I don't think that there's a legal entity of of any kind that. I mean, some think tanks. There's an issue that I'm not really fully across, but I know that there's a lot of uh, contra controversy around uh, char charitable status and things like that. And charitable state charities should uh, shouldn't shouldn't be overtly political. But um, I have to say that's not my that that's not my that's not something I've looked into in in too much detail. But they 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 can they they don't have to disclose anything. There's no there's no legal obligation on them. It's not like trade trade unions have to apply a degree of transparency. The interesting thing I think about the whole transparency debate and and uh, is that um transparency has to be symmetrical. You know, to some extent if you want to hobble an organization, you can demand absolute transparency from it. And organizations like the BBC, I think sometimes are have, have almost become dysfunctional because they they're not able to uh, do or say anything that doesn't render them open to some sort of attack, uh, because of because of you know their obligation to be responsive and and transparent. But to be responsive and transparent to this political ecology that's dominated by think tanks, not they're not transparent or responsive to a political ecology that's dominated by ordinary citizens, who are more nuanced and who you know who value a, a little bit of. Um, diversity of opinion. There's not much diversity of opinion. The idea that think tanks in their current form are improving the diversity of opinion that's available to the public, I think is a gross error. They don't. They actually diminish that uh, diversity. And I think if they were, if transparency was a, qualif a qualifier, then I think we'd get more um, diversity of opinion and less, less of a monoculture. And so, for who funds me? Have you? How have you got the information from from there? Then is that through sort of investigation, or is that sort of think tanks that are, are willing to to say how they're funded? Yeah, it was. We, we we wrote to them. Some some of them have, have essentially said they're not they're not responding, and you know they get a they they get a, a, an e. We look at their. I mean, we do look at their websites and things like that. If they if uh, if if they weren't to respond to us, but we we saw that their website had a, a full disclosure on it then they'd, they'd get a high mark but um yes so, some of the some of them the, the, the right wing ones in particular the IEA the Adam Smith Institute I can't remember which ones actually said that they they weren't going to respond um right. but but you know certainly the um and we 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 don't, we don't just take that we'll 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 do a little bit of looking ourselves but it you know it's a voluntary project as well you know we we're not backed by a wealthy think tank um, none, none of us have earned any money on this. We, it's, we're just a couple of friends. I, I set up a project about ten years ago called Political Innovation. It was just a series of talks, and this subject came up. So, you know, so somebody came to me and discussed it, and we, we ended up agreeing that we'd, uh, me and uh, you know, a few of us would set up this site. Is that is something we've done entirely voluntarily. And so I saw as well, and I know this in the FAQs on your site, but I'm, I'm sort of curious to speak to you about it more lengthily. But the, I saw that you have got specific rules in place for when uh, they say that they're backed or they're funded by a specific organisation, but that organisation is then quite shadowy in where it gets its funds from, <laughs> which, I mean, that creates sort of quite a web of <laughs> to, to, to get your way through. It does. And, you know, I think we, we, we are looking to... We'd like to move this project on. We'd like to move Who Funds You on a little bit, and we'd like to get some new partners 
involved working with us because I think there's a lot... I mean, there is a global organisation. There's a much more global body called Transparify that, um, that does... It does it in a much less nationally focused thing. They look at global think tanks. But I think, I think there's definitely... Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of room to develop um, this and for us to go a lot further. But I think, to some extent, we've, we've kind of achieved what we aim to set out, which is we've made albeit we've, we've also legitimised some of these annoying web commissars, but we, we, have, made, we have put um, the funding of think tanks on the agenda. I think politicians, I think journalists are beginning to come under pressure uh, not to do this. I think that it's, you know, an idea that's quite hard to get across. I mean, it's one of the big ideas of democracy that's really hard to get across. Should, should the politician listen more to somebody who's invested you know, who's got a, an idea that's really well marketed, really well researched. Um, you know, sh who should politicians listen to? And it, the big, the big rule in, um, in in decent democratic consultation is to um, is to find a way around the hard to avoids. Is you've you've got to reach the people who are hard to reach and make sure you include them. But you've also got to find a way of sidelining the people who dominate all political discourse um and really i think that is that idea is beginning to take root now there is a, there's an organization in the united states called every voice that uh this that is really kind of a political organization that really pushes this idea that everybody you know everybody should be fairly represented and that that put that democratic equality is is something it's i think it's one of the great undiscussed issues that that i hope will start to become more um something that's discussed a lot more i think the question that every voter should have their rep you know that that political discourse shouldn't be representing only the people who either pay for it or volunteer for it you know the busybodies the loudmouths the people people who aren't agnostic people who are certain all of the things that are wrong with electoral politics in lots of ways is that it's dominated by those people and not by people who are neutral and people who are not not so much neutral but people who are agnostic and thoughtful and have something you know uh, and you know representative of of the wider public it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss wow nice yeah what you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on bomba socks underwear and t-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds yeah 
at Plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. And we'll be back with Paul in a minute, but first... You've probably seen headlines over the past week that say things like, is wife returning to the UK? And like me, sort of generally being confused by the syntax. What sort of question is that? Is a Neanderthal man typing the news? Is wife sad? Is wife make food for man want to kill dinosaur? But of course, um, they actually said IS, as in Islamic State, formerly known as ISIL, the washing powder that makes your clothes sharier than ever before, or ISIS, the terrorist group most well-known for really ruining the business of a similarly named hair salon in King's Cross, because let's face it, no one would let them put sharp scissors near their face now. Shamima Begum left the UK at the age of 15 to go to Syria and join ISIS because teens got a rebel hard, right? But after four years of seemingly enjoying hanging out with them all, despite occasionally finding the severed heads of their enemies in the rubbish, which, I mean, that must be pretty traumatising as they should probably go into food waste. Begum is now in a refugee camp in Syria with a newborn baby and after losing two other children would like to return to the UK. Now, obviously, the tabloids have gone bonkers, and if Home Secretary and mildly rehydrated Maz Kanata, Sajid Javid, had been on safari, he'd have cancelled it, returned home, and then gone on it again just to cancel it twice in order to make a statement about this. Javid has said that he will not hesitate to prevent the return of Britons who joined Islamic State, except he said that several days ago and he hasn't really done anything yet. Now, there are a ton of moral issues around this case involving the fact, for example, that Begum was only 15 when she went to Syria and got married, which is illegal under UK law and means she was the victim of grooming. But she did also choose to join a highly dangerous extremist group all by herself and said she had much fun doing it, because let's face it, that's how all teenagers talk about their gap years, even if they spent most of it explosively shitting into a hole because they ate some sort of unspecified meat that looked a lot like the contents of a veterinary surgeon's bin in source. But then again, she's also had a baby, and that baby hasn't yet chosen to join ISIS, although, in my experience, that baby will be very good at making hugely unreasonable demands. But, on the other hand, Donald Trump has said Britain should take back all the Islamic State fighters that were captured in Syria, and while that isn't quite what Begum is, the rule is usually that the opposite of what Trump says is the way to go. Then there are questions about the safety of having IS members in the UK, but then also how will we address why young people felt they should join up in the first place if we don't speak to them? So many issues, absolutely zero correct answers. Well, except there is one correct answer, which is that of the law. Mmm, law. And legally, there isn't really anything Javid or the Home Office could do to prevent Shemima Begum from coming back to Britain on account of her being a British citizen, which means her baby is too. There are rules against stripping the citizenship from someone if doing so will make them stateless, and even though Islamic State says state in their name, they don't actually have one, and so she would be, meaning Javed can't. They are the Taxpayers Alliance or European Research Group of Terrorists. Hmm, exactly. So, the Home Office's only option at the moment is a temporary exclusion order, or TO, which would stop her from returning unless it is in accordance with the conditions of her permit, which means either she'd have to get deported back to the UK or she'd have to apply for a permit to return, which the Home Office would have to agree to, but could make conditions that she have to live in a certain place or have regular appointments with the police and stuff like that and any breach of those means Begum could be arrested and prosecuted but then there's also issues about prosecuting for being a member of a terrorist organisation as well there are guidelines on how to do it her age when she joined may also be an issue because seriously has anyone got a clue how to do anything at 15 also it's going to be pretty hard to find evidence of anything more serious she was involved in while she was there because it's probably been bombed to shit 
The other thing is that in 2017, it was reported that over 400 ISIS fighters returned from Syria to the UK as British citizens, and no one really cared. So the question is, why is this one blown up, excuse the pun, across the news? Is it so Sajid can look like he's being vaguely useful while the rest of the country falls apart? Or is it that he's concerned that another bald wailing person that struggles to comprehend anything may arrive in the country and then he'll have some competition for his job? All I know is that if, as the government and many news outlets seem concerned with, Begum's return could help radicalise others, then maybe it's best not to have her on the news every ten minutes saying how much fun she had out at summer camp for jihadists. I mean, with Brexit approaching and politicians ignoring young people's concerns on climate change, all ISIS really needs to do is add some sort of certificate scheme and a few water slides, and I doubt it would take much to push thousands their way. And now, back to Paul. And so I suppose the big question, I mean, I, I spoke to someone for this uh, this podcast last week, which was about um, all about citizens assemblies and the um, the benefit of, of those. Um, and I know the Electoral Reform Society sort of tried them, um, as they told me about last week, for uh, Brexit sort of in 2017. But aside from, I mean, that, how would you go about giving people a voice? And we're, we're very much in a system where, um, you know, as you said, the loudest voices seem to be breaking through very easily to media. We've got the issue with social media now where there's no transparency in who's funding all these adverts so that voice is you know certain voices are being projected even louder um and i know you've written obviously uh, your book about safe democracy abolished voting is that is that what we do do we need an entire overhaul uh, of the system is that what we're looking at well i mean my, my book is one of those sort of modest proposal sort of books uh it's you know i, I didn't write the book thinking everybody will read this and will abolish the electoral politics and go on to a, <laughs> a new version of democracy tomorrow. It's very much a sort of, um, you know, what I tried to do in the book was I tried to imagine what, imagine there was some zombie apocalypse or something, some massive catastrophe that, that would uh, uh, destroy all of our structures of government. And, and we, was, um, we were starting again from scratch. And everybody agrees we ought to be a democracy. But, but we've learnt lots of things from from the um, the last experiment in democracy, just before this zombie apocalypse, and what would we what would we do now if we were doing it from scratch? And I think there's a re- my my view the view in my book is that the vote is a problem in itself. It's a really appalling way of signalling to politicians, and there are better ways. There are possibly better ways. Um, but but coming back to the. The, the subject of the, you know, I think you, you raised an interesting point there about the dark money, the things that, you know, the, the um, lack of transparency about advertising in social media. And I don't know if you've seen Jamie Bartlett's book, recent book, it's called um, The People Versus Tech. Oh, yes, I know of it. Yeah, it's very good. But he, he, he looks at that in, in a lot more detail. He, you know, it's, it's something I refer to, and there's a, you know, the best part of a chapter about it in my book, but he, he really digs into it very deeply and he, he looks at it very well. And there are all sorts of things. The, the reason I'm so worried about representative democracy at the moment is that, you know, th- things tend to get destroyed when they reach a tipping point. Lots of little things. There's not big things that that derail democracy. I think it's there's a lot of little things happening. It's become easier than ever to do something called astroturfing which is where astroturfing is where you use political campaigning to create the illusion of, of a grassroots, a false grassroots, thus astroturfing. Right. Um, and, you know, in the United States, if you, if, you know, if, if social media drives you to a page 
on the on the internet that is talking about a particular policy issue, one of the options is press this button now and sky and 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 we will pay for the phone call to go through to your congressman's office or something like that. So it's very easy if you design it well to create the illusion that the whole the you know millions of people are as mad as hell about something because your office has had nothing but phone calls on a particular day about a particular subject. And you know the the e-petitioning thing and all that is all about creating the illusion that everybody's bothered about something that actually only a very small group of people. So there's astroturfing, there's the dark money, there's all this stuff we've been seeing about um, micro-targeting, where, where people use the internet to essentially get two people in the same household to deliver them entirely different messages in support of a particular candidate or rejecting a particular candidate, but that neither of them know that the other is getting a different message. So there's all sorts of developments that the internet, I think, that, that, that social media, that networked technology, it's given politicians all sorts of tools that have a lot of potential for evil in, in democratic terms. Um, and I think that that's, the, that's something that we, need, we, we do need to worry about. And I think the think tanks thing is, is just one of those. Again, they've been enabled by the blogosphere yeah, they grew out of the blogosphere. They've been able to buy all of this uh, in the last 20 years. And they're, they're all, all of them are things that representative democracy does need to worry about. Uh, so I guess is uh, a part of it is just on, on us as the kind of public to be more savvy about these things, to kind of be more wary of, of what we're doing. And, and I suppose sites like, like Who Funds Me are incredibly useful for that it does i mean without sounding like sort of a, a this is a terrible sort of moany thing to say but it's, it's quite a lot of effort to constantly keep on top of checking where every single source is actually coming from isn't it yeah I, I think it is i think it should be i mean it's intended to be a tool for journalists it's intended to, you know we would like journalists to just stop having this this thing where they go to the easiest they, they always go to a source that's guaranteed to have a well-crafted soundbite ready for them and it's lazy it's a, it's, it's late i mean i'm not saying the individual journalists are lazy i think they're they're usually massively overworked but the um it's it, it's it's a journalistic ecology that's lazy so staying i, I think it's I, I don't i wouldn't expect every voter to be checking uh who funds you every day and every time they hear a source speaking that they go onto the who fund you website to find out who they are before they decide whether to agree with it or not but i think it's it's more about the way that that think tanks disrupt political discussion and what we aim to do is 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 reduce their ability to do that by um by encouraging journalists to know where think tanks are from i don't think most a lot of journalists haven't thought about this and don't really go but really good journalists often you know you'll see that the only sources they're going to are these, um, you know, these these retail policy out outlets instead of go instead of going somewhere, you know, going outside the circle. That's what I mean about think tanks damage the the diversity of opinion. That's that's you know uh, opaquely funded think tanks damage the diversity of opinion that's available to us, and that's what we're aiming for. It's a journalist tool. It's more than a, a tool for the tool for the, for every voter.
I mean, it's, it does even just even from a, uh, a, a to really dumb it down the conversation, but even from an entertainment point of view, I'm getting very bored of the same faces on every single program and the same politicians. It gets quite dull after um, after a very short amount of time. And you never see there's a lot of very good backbenchers that you never see because they get crowded out by by people. I mean, not all of the think tanks that that I, that I find very irritating are ones that are opaquely funded. You know, the uh, some of the left-wing ones, Navarra Media and things like that, these... I mean, they they all seem to me to be a sort of... Like, imagine Nathan Barley, but woke. <laughs> you know, it's... Uh, the, these preposterous people talking about fully automated luxury communism and things like that. And, and, and they get on television a lot as well because they're always guaranteed to say something sparky and... Um, and something that that sort of, you know, makes everyone sit up. But you don't see the backbenchers. You know, there are lots of really good backbenchers. I, I worked briefly in in part. I worked I worked for a Labour MEP back in the nineteen nineties, and I met loads of really great, thoughtful, sensible backbenchers uh, who would never go on, never be asked to go on television because they're not because they're going to be equivocal. They're going to say something sensible and something that's not provocative and something that's not clickbaity and that sort of thing. So instead we have to have Aaron Bastiani or or um someone from the Institute for Economic Affairs or or someone from Spiked. You know, this this sort of slightly weird uh, Trotsky's cult from the nineteen eighties and nineteen nineties that's turned into a into a contrarian libertarian outfit. You know, they all they all say the same thing. They, they they all they all talk about how you know how how opposed to censorship they are, but they they kind of censor each other. They all say they can all be guaranteed to expect to turn up at the same time and say the same thing on cue, like every other Trotskyist subgroup. You know they're, they're no different from the SWP in that. So one question I ask uh, every interview that I have on the show, and in sort of in an effort really to um, help people find better sources for their information, um, apart from who funds you, uh, and obviously you mentioned Transparify earlier as well, um, who, where do you go to? Who should listeners check out um, sort of investigation of either non-transparent funding of think tanks or just where you would trust for um, good political information, actually balanced stuff? Well, I, I was a I was a huge fan of the blogosphere, which is now largely, to some extent, has been killed. It was killed by by Google and, to a lesser extent, by Facebook. Google closed down a marvelous tool called Google Reader about well, it must be nearly ten years ago now, certainly seven or eight years ago, and it was a great way of aggregating all the stuff that blogs did. And there were some there there are some great bloggers. There are some there were some really good. There were a lot more, and a lot of them have. Of retired hurt, or you know, they're friends of mine on Facebook now, so I'll follow them. I, I, I do use, I do use Twitter, and I don't follow. I, I follow the people I used to read their blogs. Uh, there's a great blog, Stumbling and Mumbling, which is a really good economist um, blog that's that's really worth looking at. And I look at the, you know, the links off that. I look at the links off a few other sites, things like that. Open Democracy is interesting. Um, I don't always agree with it, but it, it's it's interesting. There's a blog in Northern Ireland called Slugger O'Toole that I did some work on some years ago. I like independent sources, but I also do value uh, good writing and good, well-funded writing. And I think I think sometimes you have to do the do the unthinkable and actually read a book. <laughs> yeah, I've mentioned Shuck. I've mentioned Jamie Bartlett's book. You know, there's another Jamie, Jamie Suskins, who, who's written the 
uh, a book called uh, Future Politics, which is really interesting. Um, I think there's James Bloodworth, the writer I mentioned earlier. Um, he's he's consistently interesting, and his his blog uh, is, is, is the, the various articles he writes. Um, you know, I think I think. I think our ability to form our own media is very good. I think, unfortunately, Google and Facebook exist to, uh, to steer us in to in, into the into the direction of people who are paying them in some way or other. So, um, I, I'm I'm worried about the about diversity in the media, and I, I I wouldn't say that there's there isn't it's not as easy as it used to be to be able to tune into. Um, a very a, a high quality diverse discourse as it as it was perhaps in the 1980s i think that the i wrote an article a while ago it was a, a bit of a counter intuitive article saying the worst thing that happened to democracy is when they started broadcasting parliament <laughs> um you know in a way what happened was as soon as they started doing that newspapers stopped reporting what backbenchers said they said you know newspapers start to think well it's okay it's all you know people who care about that can could listen to the radio now and if you look at the difference between the quality of political coverage before the broadcasting of parliament and afterwards it had the counterintuitive effect of actually reducing public awareness of what goes on in parliament and it took it took political discourse out of parliament and into the tv studio yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, is there also something? I mean, uh, uh, just throwing this in with without any sort of uh, knowledge, but the you know, in, in the way that, for example, uh, the Big Brother house, when people are aware there were cameras in it, they they and they played up to it. <laughs> you know, do you think that's it's made Parliament kind of more pantomime that they know there's cameras in there now? Oh yeah, abs- now. absolutely. There's there's you know there's a thing called the Hawthorne effect, um, which is where you know people behave differently if they know they're being observed. Um. And th- there's definitely that, and that was something that was noticed straight away on the day that um, on the day that Parliament was started broadcasting. Tony Benn got sacked. You know that was his. He he was he was sacked because he said something that made him and the government look daft, and um, you know it had it that that sort of political transparency had its first its first. Um, Scalp the day the, the article I wrote. If you Google it, it's called "How Tra- How the Transparency Lobby Weakens Parliamentary Democracy." Um, but yes, there's definitely politicians behave differently when when the when they were discussing this, and it wasn't a, it wasn't one of those things that the Parliament said was unanimously in favour of. There was a real resistance, and they sent out select committees that went over to the United States and Canada, and they came up with horror stories. They came up with a story of this awful thing that was beginning to dominate American politics called the soundbite, something that we didn't have in, 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 in Britain in the 1970s. And they were saying, it's awful. You know, all of a sudden, all the brains and all the nuance and all the diversity has fallen out of, of, of politics because of it. You know, uh, about 15 years ago, a website called um, They Work For You was published. Hey. And everybody loves it. You know, I, I, I'm literally the only person I've ever heard saying I wish this, web, this website had never been invented. Because what it did was it, it, it allowed people to think that they can micromanage politicians. 
and it started getting this thing so that you can you can do that web commissar thing where you go well who are you to talk you voted for the Iraq war you know so so I'm not going to listen to anything you say now because of that um, or you you know where you you discount someone on the basis that they they, they have an unfashionable opinion on something else uh, and in the past that was something that was the a, almost the exclusive preserve of of well-funded politicos so it kind of looks more democratic that you know in in the in the 1990s if i wanted to do an attack job on a politician i had to hire a lobbyist and spend money but now i don't have to i can use uh they work for you so the argument goes that 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 makes things more democratic but i don't think it does i don't think sort of slightly widening the amount, the pool of the amount of people that can participate in democracy necessarily makes it more democratic i think you either get a, a you know make a, a step change where millions and millions of people can have a meaningful um participation in politics or keep it with the people we elect we've, we've really not we've not nobody has looked at all of these technical developments and all of these new opportunities and thought how can we implement these in a way that doesn't damage the character of representative democracy where politicians can be thoughtful and can go away and stand on their records and not not have to not not be giving people the politics that they think they want in the future. Thanks to Paul for letting me interview him. Um, he can be found on Twitter at PaulZeroEvans1 and his website is paul-evans.org on which you can find links to by his book Save Democracy, Abolish Voting. Uh, but it is also available at all good book retailers and probably also bad and morally ambivalent ones. Um, who Funds You is at whofundsyou.org and can also be found on Twitter at whofundsyou and is on Facebook at, uh, yeah, you guessed it, facebook.com forward slash whofundsyou. Uh, who'd have thank it? Um, who to speak to next? Who shall I get on this show so I can get the name of their website or campaign completely wrong next time? Who is a suitable interviewee for my tired, often poorly written questions that I usually put together after having not enough coffee? Let me know who I should get on this show, and you can do that via at Bro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast group on Facebook, the contact page on partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk, or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or, like the highly endangered white rhino, you could convey your message through a huge pile of steaming dung and its particular smell. Though if you do that, I will just assume you want me to interview someone about Brexit again. As always, it's probably just best to email. And that's all for the Partly Political Broadcast podcast this week. Tar and that for choosing this show instead of just listening to the ambient sounds of a road drill or the calming wails of a mating elephant. Do you know what? I bet podcasts of those things exist. I bet they do. I bloody bet it. Uh, please don't forget to review the show, donate to the Kofi Patreon or my stupid Watson Marathon Challenge. And most importantly, if you enjoy the show, tell people, whisper it in their ears as they leave your embrace to depart on a long and possibly dangerous journey. Yell the RSS feed details from a mountain at the villains chasing you that you're now stuck on the other side of a broken rope bridge from, or just bring it up at the local village meeting as something that's far more of a statement than a question. Yeah, cheers pal to Acast for cacheting this show in amongst its audio storage. Thanks to my brother, The Last Skeptic, for all the music, and to Cat and Day for the weekly linear liner notes that end up on partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk website with all the week's important links. This will be back next week when the independent group will split, saying they were embarrassed and ashamed to stay, as Chukra Munna forms his own Chukas Pukka party, while Chris Leslie announces... While Chris Leslie announces his new group, the Yes We Like Coldplay But What Of It party, and Angela Smith sits staring vacantly into a hole in a wall for five days. Bye! This week's show is brought to you by Maze Mouldy Jam, a new range of Prime Minister-approved fruit preserves topped especially with the furry horror of decay.
Our five flavours include strawberry and penicillium, blending the sweet taste of summer with the acrid power of antibiotics, which you'll need after eating this. Also, raspberry and cladosporium, rhubarb and mucohemolis, and lemon curd that was just left out far too long in the sun. Maze mouldy jam for when your only sense of duty to culture involves you chuffing down fungus. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.